You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimization, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual and possibly thankful for once that he's not in Texas is David Leach from ITK. David, how are you? Giles, I'm well. Uh, I've visited Texas on many occasions. I've got an old school friend who lives in Austin, but although he's moved out because he's unhappy with the new government, but... uh, uh, he's, got, he's, he's gone to the Middle East. Uh, but uh, uh, yes, this month, this week, I'm glad I'm not there. In fact, I saw, um, uh, Giles, that we shouldn't waste too much time, a photo on Facebook, uh, one of the last ones I'll ever see, a meme of some woman uh, swimming in Scotland in the ice. Uh, uh, you know, and it, uh, I now under, better understand why my ancestors moved to Australia. <laughs> Look, um, I wanted to mention Texas one because it is a bit of a catastrophe over there. I mean, having that many million people without power when it's really, really cold is um, very unfortunate and possibly sort of very threatening in in many circumstances. But it's been an extraordinary. It's it's relevant to us because it's a bit of a reprise of the South Australian blackout we had years ago and uh, lots of other events that have happened. Um, and it's been interesting to see the Conservatives and the naysayers piling in, um, blaming renewables for what was essentially um, a problem with thermal generation and particularly gas in Texas. And um, I should just point out that uh, Katan Joshi, um, our, uh, one of our correspondents, has written a, a very good analysis on this, in fact, two analyses on this, and um, and one of them has been the, the most read story on renewable economy in the last two years. So it's certainly sort of generated a lot of interest. Um, I fancy quite a lot of that overseas and possibly in Texas itself. But um, enough of that. Is, well, it is sort of fascinating to see how these things sort of play out. I mean, it's it's probably also worth mentioning, uh, Giles, that uh, one of the things that went on is that uh, the, there was an underestimate of demand as well. So So there we go. Well, that's right. Back to Australian shores. David, um, we've got a terrific interview coming up with Osgrid about community batteries, but should we just sort of touch on first just some of the bigger headlines this week? And I guess it was all about coal. Um, you wrote an excellent analysis, which was also very well read, um, talking about um, the problems that AGL and Origin have had uh, convincing investors that they have a decent future. You also wrote about the risk of early clo- early coal closures due to low wholesale prices. This was something that was amplified and repeated by uh, Kerry Schott, the ESB chairwoman, and pretty much confirmed by Origin Energy in um, Thursday's results where they warned of a bit of a messy exit. What can you add? Well, I think it's clear from looking at both the AGL and Origin results that in regard to their New South Wales uh, coal generation assets, they planned both of them to reduce the capital expenditure on them and to run them more as capa- as uh, firming uh, power plants rather than as um, bulk energy suppliers. Uh, that's particularly going to be the case with Araring, which is owned by Origin Energy, which is just about the biggest electricity producer in the country or very close to it with AGL's uh, Bayswater unit, where they've already said that the you know at the time of today's conference there was uh, one unit offline uh, and so what we're, we're going to see more of this and reduced uh, capex and and 
And, and so that's one side of things. But the risk is not that uh, any power station is going to close. That's uh, it's the risk of them all closing at once, in a sense, and uh, that uh, in in what people refer to as a disorderly fashion. Um, and, and that there's not enough replacement supply. So I think myself that we would have no repeat of the Hazelwood, the change in electricity prices that followed the unexpected closure of Hazelwood with the systems far better prepared for it than when that occurred. But if say three power stations were all to close within three or four years, it's the cumulative effect uh, that people would have to think about on things like system services, uh, volatility and prices, uh, ability to provide that last bit of capacity in the middle of winter, all, all those sorts of things. So what's the um, solution to this? The Nationals, of course, would have us invest in new coal-fired generation as part of their sort of proposed alternatives for the um, CFC. In fact, even nuclear power. Um, I don't think we're going to see either of those two technologies. Um, but we're asked, to, um, it was interesting to see um, Origin 1 talk about its big battery plans as AGL had done a week earlier. Um, also, Origin highlighting the problems with Stockyard Hill and um, Stockyard Hill is probably the biggest and most dramatic of all the projects that we've seen delayed. It's about a year overdue already. It's been completed and constructed for several months. Um, it has not even obtained its registration. It's not producing. Origin has therefore chosen to pay a penalty um, for not meeting its RIT renewable energy target obligations. I mean, that's really just a bit of sort of a, a, a sideshow there because it can do that because it's got three years grace. But it certainly, when we hear talks about a messy coal output, when we hear about the delays in the grid, there's certainly, for all the goodwill that's out there amongst institutions and regulators and things like that, well, most regulators, um, there's still a lot to be solved and worked out, isn't there? Well, well there is. And uh, some of the challenges are technical uh, that we've been trying to raise attention to on this podcast uh, through like the interview with Stephen Sproul. But in regard to the Coal Generation X, uh, you might recall at the end of last year, or listeners might recall, I'm sure you do, Giles, that we uh, interviewed the uh, economist from the Blueprint uh, uh, Institute who talked about having a, uh, an auction for closures. And so this is one of the areas where, if you like, uh, the federal government could actually still get involved uh, and do something useful instead of just continuously throwing sand in the wheels promoting ideas that just simply like, uh, you know, uh, uh, nuclear or, 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 or federal investment in new gas stations that, that just, you know, nothing to do with what the people in the electricity industry generally think is appropriate. It's like the federal politicians are just living in a completely different universe to most other people in the world. I think most of our listeners already knew that, but it's still disappointing to hear these sort of increasingly uh, uh, lunatic uh, ideas, you know, which I, I guess we will soon see repeated on Facebook quite a lot, uh, uh, since that's <laughs> going to be the place for loony ideas in the future. Well, exactly. Yes, we won't go too much into the Facebook thing. Look, let's turn to our interview of the day. Um, community batteries, David. I mean, you've been fascinated by them. Um, we've talked about them over at Western Power. Um, they're such small things, but they could, as we're about to find out, play such an important role in the grid. And we are about to find out um, with our interview with Osgrid's Rob Amphlett Lewis. He's the Chief Operation Officer, and um, he talked to us this week just after the formal opening of the very first community battery in Sydney. Rob Amphlett Lewis, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. 
Osgrid this week launched the first of its community batteries in the northern suburbs of Sydney. It's the first of three in a trial, but your CEO made very clear this week it would be the first of many. What is the attraction of community batteries to a network operator such as Osgrid? Well, I think uh, first and foremost, uh, it's a really exciting time for us because we see this as a sort of natural extension of the role that we play as a, as a service to the community. And our service is, is one about sharing. If we, we share a shared community asset, we can provide you know, uh, uh, power, uh, uh, reliable, uh, high quality power to our customers at much lower costs than traditionally people could have done on, on their own. So sh we, we have the view that sharing is better uh, and we see that the, the world's moving to increasingly to, to, to a decarbonized energy system. We understand and we uh, acknowledge that that um, comes with challenges to overcome and so we look at those challenges and say well what role can we play in supporting that transition and the community battery is a real real sweet spot for us um, because it provides a number of services to a number of different um, uh, parties and overall uh, brings down the cost of getting more renewables into the system and that's got to be a good thing so overall it's a it's a view that we need to, to play our role in supporting decarbonisation. What what would this actually do though? Just so specific of what this battery is located in a suburb. This one's actually in um, Beacon Hill. Beacon Hill. Beacon Hill. Yep. There you go. Beacon Hill. In, in in what will what will it do? Will it absorb the solar that's been generated in houses nearby? Will it do grid services? What um, explain exactly what, it, what? All, all of the above. So what we like to say is it's cheaper for the customer, it's better for the community, and it's greener for the grid. Uh, and so I'll go through those one one two three and, and explain each of them. So for for a customer. The customer's experience will be exactly the same in a financial sense as if they've had their, they had their own battery. So uh, the benefits uh, that accrue to their um, energy bill by consuming more of their own solar um, will accrue in the same way as if they own their own battery. However, uh, because we have the benefit of scale and diversity, um, we can provide the sa that same battery service for a lot less. So it's cheaper for the customer. It's better for the community because that battery situated within the local community can absorb uh, excess energy when solar uh, facilities are producing a lot of energy, and that, in some cases, will help manage voltage that associated with high levels of solar. But also, in periods of really high uh, demand, where there might be network constraints, the battery can manage those constraints by storing energy when it's not needed and releasing energy from the local community to the local houses without um, without creating that constraint in the local network as, as, as demand rises. So that's better for the local community and obviously pro provides uh, an ability for us to manage frequency and voltage as well in that community. And then it's greener for the grid because that battery, even though it's located down in the, the very bowels of the energy network, very close to houses, it can suck up excess energy that's uh, generated anywhere. So, you know, a, a wind farm many miles away if there's excess energy in the system, these batteries can soak that up and release it when it's needed. So cheaper for customer, better for the community and greener for the grid. And that's why we're so excited about you know, what this can do, uh, not just now, but uh, in the future and, and as the, we progress into that more decarbonized energy system. So Rob, um, you know, I, I, um, I, I agree with that uh, sort of, and I think actually the community battery can be the foundation of uh, all these system support services. But I wanted to come back to your first thing, uh, cheaper for the c customer. Obviously, in this initial trial, it's cheaper for the customer because it doesn't cost them anything. 
uh, and they get to store like up to 10 kilowatt hours uh, instead of exporting it to the grid at, at, at an export tariff, which I suppose at the moment is about 17 cents. Um, uh, probably and, more like six cents, I think. Oh, well, maybe I'm looking at now the date side. That's probably right, Giles, six cents. Yep. Um, but at, in terms of the capital cost, I can't see how it is cheaper. Uh, if uh, it's, This seems to be about a $400,000 uh, investment in this first one for, uh, what is it, 150 kilowatt hours or something, uh, 150 kilowatts and uh, two hours storage. I guess this is my fundamental issue. I, I don't understand why these community batteries are as expensive as they are. It seems to be only one installation as opposed to 30, 30 installations or whatever. Um, can you talk a little bit more just about sure. the capital costs and, 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 and the progress that you hope to make on that over time? Absolutely. So, so the way that the, the trial's working at the moment is we're um, um, basically estimating a rental charge that the, the individual would pay. Uh, and then we're estimating or recording the savings from their bill, and then we're paying them the net benefit so that no customer in the trial is worse off. So that's that's how we're doing it to make sure that the customers in the trial aren't are, are worse off. And so then you go, well, how can you make the rental cost cheaper than buying a battery itself? So if you imagine, think for a Tesla Powerwall, we imagine uh, about 13 and a half uh, kilowatts, you'd, you'd be um, looking at sort of 14, 14 grand maybe, I, 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 I don't know how the, the price has changed. I know they've gone up a little bit recently, but let's assume it's about $1,000 a, a kilowatt. The we, the individual uh, that's using that battery um, pays that capital up front, uh, that cost up front, uh, whereas we would have it as simply a, a rental fee. Um, now, the reason we can provide that rental fee a lot lower cost is because we're getting the benefits that the battery provides to the system, to us, um, and so that, that really contributes to covering some of the cost. The other thing is that because we've got scale, we will be looking, we will be getting batteries cheaper than a customer could do on their own. Uh, so scale, obviously economies of scale uh, brings you benefits. And there's also the diversity benefits. Not everyone uses uh, the network at the same time. Not everyone needs the network at the same time. So it needs the battery at the same time. So if we were to build a network for everyone using it at the same time, it would be vastly bigger and more expensive. But because human beings are wonderful creatures and do things differently at different times, you don't need to build twice the network for two people or three for four, uh, three times for three. You, you, you get the benefit of the diversity. And it's exactly the same principle um, that, that you use for, for the battery. Not everyone's going to use the battery at the same time. And therefore, the same size battery can deliver more services to more people. Um, so it's not just a sum each individual's battery. I, I, I hear all that and, and I agree with that. I mean, that seems to be the consensus and I, I don't see why it shouldn't be true. And I, I want to come back to the splitting of the revenue streams uh, or value stacks as, as they were originally mm. called between the different yep. bits. But I, I actually just wanted to focus on the straight out capital cost at the moment uh, and ignore how you can turn that into more value for the customers. But the capital cost itself, it just seems to me that this is a battery 10 times the size of a power wall more or less, uh, uh, or bigger, and but the unit cost per kilowatt hour doesn't seem to be any different, even though you're only doing the one installation. And um, if I look at big utility scale batteries and the quotes that I see, and I've talked to some of these people like Fluence and uh, uh, about that, they once you get up to 20 or 30 megawatts, you know, your capital cost seems to halve, but there doesn't seem any, I just wondered if you could just talk about the, the out and out capital cost side of it for a moment. 
Yeah, so I think it's a really good observation to make. The, the trial that we're working on at the moment is effectively the cost of us being a one-off purchaser of a battery. And so we're not generating huge amounts of economies of scale. If this trial works, as we fully expect it to, the, the, um, the analysis KPMG and ourselves have done indicates it will, then we will be a buyer of batteries at scale. And, and then you'll see, if we're rolling out many megawatts, even you know, in, in many different areas, you'll see that scale benefit translate directly into our capital costs. At the moment, we, you know, we're not winning any prizes for the cheapest batteries in the world here. Um, we're looking at two or three different technologies. We've selected them based on um, our ability to learn from them, not the cheapest um, uh, uh, cost. So you're not going to see the, 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 um, the benefits in, in the trial. We're going to learn from the trial, and then you'll see the, the economy of scale coming out as we roll this out in scale. I'll hand back to Charles in one second, and I'll just finish by asking, how many customers do you hope to sign up, and how long will the trial run? So it's a trial for two years. Um, at the moment, we've got um, uh, 250 customers signing up, um, but we, um, we're going to see how many customers um, we can provide these services to with, uh, with the same battery, and that's what it's all about. Sharing allows us to get more out of a piece of infrastructure, but we won't know exactly how much more we can leverage the infrastructure um, until we understand exactly how customers use it, uh, and the diversity, how, how the diversity uh, of usage uh, benefits uh, benefits the, the, the sort of the model. So, uh, 250 at the moment, and uh, uh, we'll see how we go. Mm. Rob, um, Western Power have um, were the first to sort of roll out a series of community batteries, and they did it for specific reasons within their grid, long skinny networks with lots of rooftop solar, and they saw it for them as a solution to be able to sort of accommodate that root matter rooftop solar on those little skinny lines, but also as an opportunity, as you suggest here, that people don't need to buy their own battery. They've been playing around with a whole bunch of different tariffs, and now they've actually sort of moved to a new one where they can actually get a credit for sort of having stored more stored over one bill period, and that can extend into the second build bill period. Do you imagine that you'll be doing something similar, sort of cutting and pasting tariffs and just seeing actually how the consumer responds and, and, and what it means for them? Uh, look, we, we've been um, for a long time big believers in the, um, the role of tariffs in, in, in promoting flexibility within um, the usage of the grid and consumption and, um, uh, and, and supply by, from DER. So uh, tariffs will, take, will play a, a huge role in supporting decarbonisation and tariffs will play a huge role in making sure that these batteries deliver the best economic outcome uh, to mm -hmm. customers. Um, so yes, we will be doing uh, and we'll be sharing learnings with Western Power. We don't have a monopoly over good ideas. We don't have a monopoly over, over the, the right tariffs. So well, one of the things I'm really liking about how the energy industry is developing at the moment, becoming a bit more mature, we are sharing and we're learning from each other. Uh, and so we're really excited to, uh, to share our learnings with Western Power and, and, and um, mm. I think from between us, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll put those learnings into action. Now, what are, they, what are some of your competitors thinking about this? And I'm thinking not just of, um, well, sort of networks and monopolies, actually, they're sort of regulated monopolies, and I guess this is, comes under sort of your unregulated business, but maybe I'm wrong about that. But the um, the friction here comes with the retailers who have been the traditional provider. Um, they've generated the power from the centralised um, generators, mostly fossil fuels. They've had the right to sort of send the bills and package them up to go to retailers. You're putting yourself, yourselves right in between. Well, you've always been in between because you've been the delivery mm. boy delivery person but now you're doing more than just providing wires you've actually sort of storing it and generating it and putting it back and taking it out um that's um what are the regulatory hurdles to overcome here so there are regulatory hurdles uh, and, and as soon as uh, you put a, a, a 
meter on one of these batteries, it, it ceases to become a network asset. And so uh, there's a bit of a hurdle uh, there. There's ring fencing, which prevents us from um, providing sort of non-network services. Um, so that's a hurdle uh, there. Uh, so there are a number of things. Ring fencing basically involves people wearing different coloured hats and different coloured shirts, doesn't it? Um, oh, it's a bit more than that. I, I think, and I think it's a it's a real focus on making sure that, that networks and monopolies, well, not networks, but monopolies don't uh, undermine the sort of functioning of markets. I do think that there are cases where monopolies have um, you know, such a big advantage that, that it's in society's interest to allow that monopoly to. to uh, to provide services, uh, notwithstanding the need for it to be regulated. And I think we've been pretty good at determining when and where that should, should occur. I feel um, that the benefits of uh, you know, uh, retail contestability and the benefits of a customer being able to switch between retailers, if should he or she want to do that, um, is, um, is worth holding on to. And so if a network owns a community battery, that retail contestability, that... that um, that ability for a customer to move around uh, and still have their access to their um, community battery is retained. So in some ways, it's supportive to the retail model. Uh, at the same time, uh, retailers have traditionally had the relationship with uh, the end customer and, and they, that's their, their, their um, uh, you know, that's their business. Uh, and we understand them that they'll be a little bit reticent to hear uh, of us looking to generate those uh, relationships. But we're at a trial phase and, um, you know, we're looking to, to work through it and see how we go. Uh, we do need to be better at communicating and interacting with our customers. And so it's probably going to be good learning for us regardless. So I guess, you know, I, I, this week I've been thinking a lot about uh, platform economics and disruptive businesses. And it seems to me that you guys are still moving at the speed of of, of a government business. If I could, if I, you know, the studies. Well, there's no need to be so mean. Lot... Sorry. <laughs> there's no need to be so mean, but I, I understand where, you, where you're coming from. Yeah. You know, a two-year trial is a long time, isn't it? Really? Mm. I mean, I, I'd have thought you'd have had a pretty good idea in a lot less than that. Oh, look, we're not going to wait till the end of the trial to, to reveal our results. And, and so the two-year two trial is a sort of specified amount of time that we've shared with our customers. But we'll learn uh, much quicker than that. Our aspiration is that the community battery will have a really significant role to support the, um, the New South Wales energy strategy, um, which sees, uh, I think, um, uh, two gigawatts of batteries coming into the grid. Um, we feel that community batteries could provide 20% of that. Um, and so... We are very, very focused on working uh, to support uh, the overall sort of um, energy strategy for the state. Uh, and we think um, we can learn quicker than, than the two years and, and we have a role to play you know, a, 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 as, soon as, uh, as soon as we can. So that's interesting. And I, I guess uh, I want to sort of come back to what Giles was talking about, the regulatory sort of issues. And it's something that's been front of my mind is just thinking about the whether the traditional way of looking at things, splitting up retailing and... And, and networks is really applicable. I mean, uh, as I've written a couple of times, it seems to me that the networks could are, are, are communities. Uh, mm. Suburbs and streets are communities. A community battery is a community service. Uh, you could put, uh, you know, as you said, you can do voltage and frequency. You can put these grid-forming inverters. Well, they are. I, I, I don't yeah. know if you've got any plans to do that. And you, you can build up a whole community uh, that that doesn't need, you know, in the way that I think modern people like like to think about things. But you are going to be competing increasingly with retail in, in, in doing that. Your uh, community batteries will, as you say, com compete with utility scat batteries in a sense. I mean, uh, 
more broadly, how are you thinking about what the role of networks is, uh, you know, in the future electricity system? So, I, look, I, I, I read your article and, and, and I really uh, sort of uh, uh, identified with it in, in a number of ways. I suppose we think of the network being almost like the internet and, and facilitating the, um, uh, the great disruptors. You know, we want to be to, uh, you know, the same as the internet is for Airbnb and, and Uber. You know, that's the sort of concept we want. We want to see disruptive, innovative business models coming onto the grid. Uh, and competing with retailers, and retailers have a, a, a great position to start from in a position of, of dominance. But we are the sharing platform. We are a shared community asset. At Osgrid, we think of ourselves as a shared community asset, providing uh, community services all the way up from Sydney up into the Hunter. Uh, and, and I think tariffs um, uh, are a really good way of spurring um, uh, the, um, the flexibility that the grid needs to cope with greater intermittency. And you're already seeing things like pool pumps being collated together, aggregators coming together, EVs, vehicle to grid charging, um, you know, batteries like this, home energy management systems. If you have the price signals within the network, then those disruptive business models, those innovations will come in and provide the support and the flexibility of demand and supply, which will allow us to move to a much more intermittent generation suite. So for me, it's a very exciting time for the, for the grid. This community battery is a real, real opportunity for us to support that transition and do it in a quicker way uh, than otherwise would happen. I know your point was that we're, we're rather slow to move, but um, you know, we're the first out there in, in, the, in the national energy market getting community batteries out there and trying to find ways to access all those value streams. So we might be slow, but we're the quickest we got at the moment. Uh, and I really hope that we can, we can continue to contribute and we can drive that sort of the revolution and the innovation uh, within the, the grid that will, will support that transition. And just on uh, finally, just technically, I, I wonder: Do you expect this community battery to uh, to let the street survive what otherwise might be a blackout if a blackout occurred two streets away? You know, because of, like I lost my power, thanks Ausgrid, uh, for about four or five days in, in a, consecutively in over 18 months ago, and then a few months after that, I lost it for another couple of days, and made me think very hard about uh, you know microgrids. Yeah, look, I, look. Those sort of weather events we saw in November and February last um, in 2019 and, and 2020 were, were, were really very, very unusual. And um, I apologise, your, your power was out for uh, <laughs> as long as it was, and we worked very hard to get you back on. But, um, you know, those weather events will continue, and, and we, we think with global warming that there's a good chance that they'll uh, increase, and we need to be ready for that. In regards to these particular batteries uh, and home batteries, they do have limited ability to see through a long outage, um, and that's because the sort of um, the demands on those batteries aren't well suited to uh, to seeing through uh, an outage. It, it is sort of pro prohibitively costly at the moment. Now that's to say where we are at the moment, but where we are today, we wouldn't have expected to be 20 years ago, uh, and I think the technology is evolving. So. In the fullness of time, community batteries may well um, provide that extra layer of insulation from the sort of weather events that uh, we saw last year, but um, it's a bit of a way away uh, yet. Hmm. Rob, I just got a, go, a couple of final questions. I was just fascinated by your reference there that the community batteries might be able to provide 20% of the uh, battery storage needs identified by the New South Wales government in its transition plan. Now, one would normally associate battery storage of this sort of type to be either sited right next to wind farms or solar farms or in some sort of centralised next to a big sort of hub in the network and stuff like that. It's fascinating to think that it might be spread across the network in houses next to next to houses and things like that. So when you 
your CEO is talking about many, he's probably actually thinking a lot, like a yeah. real lot. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and a battery, you know, that battery that sits next to the wind farm to firm it, if you cut that battery into 50 and separate it amongst, amongst 50 communities, you've got exactly the same ability to firm up that renewable power. But you're also providing a service to the people in the community, and you're also providing uh, network um, yeah, augmentation offset. So you're you're avoiding the need for network augmentation. Uh, so, you know, the, for, for us, and I think that, that the the debate is pretty much one on this. The closer the battery is to the bottom of the system, the closer it is to the customer, the more value streams it can access. Uh, and so for us, we know that we're going to have a role here, uh, and that role will be. Uh, uh, will be significant if the economics pan out the way that we, we expect them to. That's so really interesting. Time. Yeah, that's really interesting. Tell me more about the idea of being closer to the customer rather than to the generator. So, if your if your battery sitting uh, next to the generator, um, if you think about, uh, if you imagine a, a network being like a tree, you've got the trunk and the, the the branches and the leaves. A battery on the in the leaves can avoid problems in the twigs and the branches and the the boughs and the and the trunk. Um, as well as uh, provide firming to renewable energy. If it's sitting on the trunk or next to the big wind farm, it's really got one use case, and that is to support that wind farm. It can't provide services. It can't avoid uh, network upgrades uh, downstream. Um, batteries can do that upstream when they're, when they're situated towards the end of the network. So um, we think it's a no-brainer that um, in many ways Large-scale generation should be upstream, and large-scale—not uh, large-scale, but storage of any scale—should be as far downstream as you can get it. Uh, well, and I think the logic and the economics stack up very well for that. Well, that sounds quite compelling. But we're also hearing at the same time all these other people, um, AGLs and the um, the the origins and some other new players in the industry talking about the biggest battery ever is going to be built here, there, or everywhere else. So you're not—you're suggesting that's not such a good idea, or is there going to be room for both? There's definitely room for both. I think the reality of the situ situation we're in, the amount of um, storage that we're going to need is going to be um, significant. Ideally, and I, don't, I don't, but I don't think batteries can solve the, the system's entire storage needs by themselves. They're not going to solve the, no. you know, winter nights when there's no, uh, not much wind uh, for, for weeks on end. That's absolutely right. And, and, and we shouldn't look at batteries as the only way of dealing with this issue either. So... You know, flexibility is the is the key term that we like to use, and flexibility is about you know consuming less or or generating more or moving consumption or moving de uh, generation. And, and batteries provide a really valuable last. You know, is it last mile? Is it last foot? Is it the last inch? Well, batteries are expensive. If they're if it's the last mile, it's going to cost us a lot more than if it's the last foot or the last inch. Uh, and other things need to to, to help uh, in there. And I think sort of hydrogen uh, pump storage. Uh, all of that'll, those be of that'll be another interview. I don't want to waste uh, your <laughs> valuable time in these last couple of questions on, on hydrogen, for heaven's sake. Um, what <laughs> I it, want to ask my point is that there's a huge range of different solutions, and we've got to be open to diverse solutions, I think. In, 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 the in, two in, quest, quick in, questions in I wanted to, one is, I hope, very quick. Uh, it, there won't be any uh, distribution charges for customers sending stuff to or from the battery. Do you have to get regular, I mean, how does that actually, do you need to get regulatory permission for that? Or, or you know, how do you think about that? So we, we're, we're working through that with other, other distributors and we'll work with customers as well about how, how, the, how the charging should work. Is there a local user system charge or is there no user system charge at the moment? None. Um, but, you know, if this takes off in the future, what's the right equitable uh, share of, 
of network costs for someone who's using the, the network locally in a very different way uh, than, than someone who would traditionally use it. Um, we need to work through that, and we'll do that with customers and with the AR and regulators and so on uh, to make sure we get the right result. So it seems to me that uh, you, that then brings us up to uh, tariff structures, which is a subject I've read more on than I would I'd be embarrassed to admit. Uh, makes <laughs> you a very boring person. But uh, I, I, I came to the conclusion that you'd be better off uh, fixing the, uh, the wires and poles cost uh, almost like uh, having a road that goes to your house and it wouldn't vary so much with use. But you've been mm. obviously thinking about tariffs, Rob. Rob, if you know, if you could, for, for in, in the future, then that we're going into, what's what's your basis for residential uh, tariff access, network access? So uh, I, I used to completely agree with you in terms of the, the the benefit of having a fixed charge for for network tariffs. I've sort of changed a little bit insofar as I strongly think feel that we need to provide a price signal to flexibility, um, and that's flexibility about when you use uh, you consume energy. And so we worked with our customers in the last regulatory review and, uh, and we've introduced demand tariffs, which basically provide a, a, a signal about uh, when networks are constrained. Now, it's a fairly static signal at the moment, but now there is a price signal to bring flexibility into the market. So a customer can benefit from investing in a home energy management system, for example. So for me, that brings flexibility into the grid. Over time, we'd like to see it so that that price signal could move around and devices would um, would know about that and move around uh, as well. So we feel longer term that network prices and and retail prices really should be prices for devices and that we should have, um, or we will have, the sort of technology we have today can help us move our consumption around us in a way that's not even perceived or inconvenient to the individual. But the sum of those little movements collectively across the system can reduce the cost for everyone. Uh, so I think that's, for me, the most important thing is having that price signal for flexibility and thinking about, in the not-too-distant future, those prices being targeted. So, yeah, and I might just add that even within today's tariff structure, you know, like it's shoulder and uh, peak charges, basically, when solar's operating. But if I look in the generation market, we can all see that in the middle of the day, most of the year now, uh, the actual, it's essentially, that should be off-peak, shouldn't it, really? Yeah. Exactly, and, 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 and with the time at which networks are constrained or wholesale markets are constrained or capacity is surplus or, or, or in demand, you know, those will change. And I think we have to have pricing that reflects that rather organic energy system we're going to come into, which almost has a life of its own and needs to respond to the needs of the, the people using it and, and also cater for times of excess supply or excess demand. Good stuff, Rob. Well, look, um... I think it takes us, uh, takes us back to the end, the end of the interview. So, Luke, um, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. I look forward to um, uh, hearing from you guys uh, uh, and reading your, your work uh, in the future. So, so thanks a lot for everything you do for the industry as well. And that was Rob Amphlett Lewis from Osgrid. Um, David, um, fascinating to hear just how prominent a role that community batteries could play in the transition or the transformation of Australia's grid. Yes, but I'm not sure that uh, the the network operators are necessarily fully on board yet or even proceeding at the kind of the right pace. Uh, you know, I raised some issues in there about the bureaucracy and the capital cost. I mean, it's not to be uh, at all critical of what Osgrid's doing, but just simply that the markets are moving at a pretty good uh, pace. And, uh, you know, you have to work pretty darn hard to keep up. 
uh, I, I'm still very attracted intuitively to this idea that the community uh, can be the basic building block of the electricity system of the future and that community batteries uh, can offer some big savings. I mean, in West Australia, the latest uh, projects are offering, uh, are being charged out at $1.20 a day, you know, which is a bit over $400 a year. And you can compare that to the uh, cost of, of the Tesla Powerwall, which is, you know, price has gone up again uh, recently uh, to about $14,000, I think, mm -hmm. which is $1,000 a kilowatt hour. But this community battery that Osgrid's uh, putting in, initially, at least initially, is actually going to have a higher cost than that. Now, the cost per kilowatt hour is not the only way to think about it. You can also think about the maximum power that the thing can provide. But certainly, we're not seeing the economies of scale that I would have hoped to see when you're doing one installation instead of 30 installations uh, or just the state out standard sort of reduction for size of battery that you expect to see. Is Australia just too obsessed with two-year trials? It seems that everything we actually do, we've got to have a two-year trial. I mean, even now Comcar and trialling out some electric vehicles which have been driven all across the world for God knows how long already, we're going to have a two-year trial for two EVs. And we seem to, every time we seem to do something with a virtual power plant or a battery, it's another two-year trial. We seem to be obsessed by trials. I'm sure we could do these a lot quicker, couldn't we? Oh, well, no doubt. And I actually think that many in the industry are already on top of it. Uh, we we uh, interviewed the uh, Rick Francis from Spark, who's, who's driving a Tesla. Uh, we interviewed Matt Keane, who has uh, a Tesla in New South Wales already, uh, um, at least some of the time. And I recently learnt that Marcus Brockoff, uh, the uh, very senior person in the, at AGL, uh, uh, drives a Nissan Leaf, uh, so, you know, the, uh, in, around here in Linfield, I see Teslas at two, a couple every, every single day. Uh, it's, it's, uh, so, you know, um, they're probably new in Canberra, I guess, or always a bit behind uh, the post. <laughs> no, I was actually thinking more of a broader set, um, just until we have two-year two trials of just about everything when we're sort of introducing these new technologies. And I'm just wondering whether we, we actually need them to be two-year trials. It just seems to be like another excuse. Oh, we can have a two-year trial of this, and, and, and that's, you know, so, so we do, we, we put in one or two or three of these things, and, you know, be they batteries and stuff like that. Do they really need to be that long? Well, you know, it contrasts, uh, I guess that's the exact uh, point I was trying to make, uh, Giles, and I think which you're reinforcing uh, quite deliberately. If you look at, say, what the one thing interesting thing that Origin is doing is this investment in Octopus, the UK uh, in a new new style platform energy retailer, um, um, which and, and which is going very fast. And the idea there is you 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 build the smallest thing you can possibly sell to a customer, and you sell it, and then you just keep going and building and building on it as fast as you possibly can, because in all of those markets, it's winner take all. Uh, and it's uh, you have to be you have to go really really hard and get everybody on board onto your platform, uh, and then you make an absolute fortune. You know, ten years later, and there's business after business that you can look at, whether it's uh, Shopify or, or, or eBay or, or Uber or Airbnb, uh, where, where the guys really really get it. But I'm not sure that monopoly regulated network businesses uh, or even most of the energy retailers in Australia actually uh, understand just what what they're what it's about these days. Hmm, that's exactly right. 
Well, thank you very much, David. I don't know whether we've got anything else to um, throw into today's mix. We had a good interview with uh, Rob Banflett Lewis from Osgrid. Um, thanks to you once again. Thanks to our sponsors, um, Pylon and Evergen. Thanks to all our listeners. Um, you won't be finding us on Facebook anytime soon, but you will find us in the normal channels, including our website and your favorite podcast platform. And uh, do please give us your feedback. We do appreciate it. And if you look carefully, you can actually see some videos being produced, just short ones, three minute ones. We're just sort of trying out a new form of multimedia. So um, please give us your feedback about that as well. That's it for now. We'll talk again next week. Bye. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant generating significant value for consumers, network operators, and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost, and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.